All right, the center of his will. Now, I think a lot of us are familiar with, obviously, the crucifixion. Almost everyone, even people who don't know anything about Jesus, understand the, the symbol of a cross. And uh, most people are aware that, that of what occurs, you know, the cross, and, and we talk about the resurrection after that of Jesus and all that that means, the purpose of Easter. But what happened five days earlier, not as many are familiar with that. There was a seriously significant event that occurred five days earlier. We call that, and something we're going to celebrate next Sunday in the church calendar, called Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday has to do with what occurred, again, five days before Jesus was crucified, when he comes into Jerusalem in, in an astonishingly uh, kind of uh, popular way. I mean, it's called in the scriptures the triumphal entry. He comes in to the, to the praises and, and adulations of the crowds in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's a, an extraordinary moment. I want us to look at it together in the scripture. We're going to spend more time on this passage next week, but I want to focus on a particular aspect of it. Uh, we're going to see that there's a lot of uh, messianic implications in this passage, but I just want to talk about it and sort of set it up. It says the next thing you can follow, John 12, you can follow in the handout if you have your Bible apps or you have your Bibles, follow along with me. John 12, verses 12 through 15. It says the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees. That's why they call it Palm Sunday. And they went out to meet him, and they cried out. They were waving their palms. It was, very, it was a lot of pageantry in this reception of Jesus as, they, as people begin to wonder, is he going to announce himself as Messiah, the king? It says that they, they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna. And that literally means save now, save now, Savior save. By this time, it had become a colloquial reference uh, to praise and joy for deliverance that was either granted or anticipated. So in a more general sense, it just meant praise be to God. So they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, Savior save, praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That was a big statement. It was, again, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it. As it is written, this is in alignment with the passage in Zechariah 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus enters this moment, not as one caught up in the hysteria or the euphoria. Again, trying to create the moment in our mind's eye. The streets are just lined with people. The ancient streets of Jerusalem, which you can go to today, and they, you can see in the, in the old city how, how it must have felt in some way, or how close to it anyway. Even though it's different, there's a lot of things that remind us of, a, of an earlier time. And Jesus is walking through the streets into Jerusalem, and they're crying out and praise. And, and here's the thing. The disciples are loving every moment of it. It's everything they envisioned and hoped for. But Jesus, even though he's cooperating with it, is not consumed in it. Because he understands better than everybody else that in about five days, the same crowds, or at least a good portion of this crowd, that's right now praising him and calling him a king, is going to also join in with an entirely different group of people who are going to start yelling out, we reject him, especially after Pilate rolls him out and he looks anything but like a king. Utter, humi utter humiliation. And, and, and there's going to be a group of people, a mob of people, some of whom are the same ones that have been crying out, praise be to God, the king has come. They're going to start yelling a different phrase, crucify him, he's not our king. Jesus is aware of how quick public opinion can turn and, and how fickle people can be. And as soon as he doesn't meet up to their expectations of a revolutionary leader, he understands how it's going to go down. He sees it already. He knows exactly where he's going. And yet he doesn't show any cynicism or resistance. 
It's kind of like he, he just moves forward with an assurance of, of someone who's committed to an outcome that is never in doubt. And he's a model for us. And that got me thinking about something. We're reminded of what a powerful place it is to be in the center of the will of God. When we are the closer, let's put it this way, the closer we are to, to where God wants us to be, the more unshakable we will become. The closer we are to where God wants us to be, the more unshakable we will become. And it doesn't matter what life throws at us. And it can throw a lot of stuff. We've been talking a lot about the things that hit us in life. But the more we are connected to the place where God wants us to be, the more unshakable we will be. Look what it says in Psalm 46, which is a great connection. And I put this in your hand as well. God is our refuge and our strength. Look at this. A very present help in trouble. Do we have trouble? If we do, listen, God can be our refuge. He can be our strength. Therefore, we will not fear. Watch how the psalmist says it. He then pulls out this language. It's very poetic. It's very picturesque. But he's trying to get us to think about a world melting down. He goes, even if everything starts melting down on us, he says, there is a place where we can have a center and survive. Look what he says. God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar, and they be troubled, and it's raging all around us, though the mountains shake, and it's with its swelling. Again, the picture here is of things falling apart, breaking down all around us. He says, there is a stream, a river, whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacle of the Most High, the place where God's presence dwells. And God is in the midst of her and shall not be moved. She shall not be moved. We see here the promise of refreshment and sustainment when we're in that holy place or for how we're talking about it in the center of his will or close to it. When we're where he wants us to be, when we're in it, it's almost like we can't be moved. We can safely negotiate anything if we're where God wants us to be. It's a, it's a powerful place. It's a safe place. And then it says, look at that, stable, secure. God shall help her just at the breaking of dawn. That is at the perfect time, at the right time, the new beginning time. But part of our challenge then, it's kind of the setup here, is that the part of the challenge then is to live closer to the center of his will for our lives. That's what I want to get at. I want to get us all thinking about what would it be to live closer to the center of his will in your life and in mine. How do we do this? How do we know what it is? You know, Jesus, again, was under no illusions. Even as they proclaimed him king, he knew that by week's end, they would, his life on earth would end. And I thought to myself, what would, it we, what would I do if I knew I only have five days to live? Like, I knew it. And in Jesus' case, he's in his 30s. He knows exactly where this is going. You know, if we only had five days, what would we do? No, I told myself, besides eating anything that I would want to eat any time. Like, bring it on, right? I have no restraints. Absolutely. No. What would we do if we knew that our end point was in five days? Getting a little more serious here. What, what words would we say? And who would we say them to? Are there, are there some people we would need to talk to? What adjustments would we make? Are there some habits or practices we would immediately, I mean immediately detach ourselves from because in our heart we know they're unworthy and 
based on what's happening, I'm not interested in that anymore right now. I don't want it in my life. But in other words, what would it look like to tighten things up? Interesting phrase on the back end there. What would we choose to ignore? Are there certain offenses that we've been carrying? It's like, I don't want them anymore. There are certain pursuits that we've been pursuing. It's like, well, really? This doesn't mean that much to me anymore. It's amazing how much clarity can come from doing a little bit of an exercise, exercise like this, how much focus it can actually give us. Because a lot of times, you know, we're like, when I say, what would we choose to ignore? Sometimes we're going, oh man, this, this, is, this is consuming my life. Or, you know, this is, what I, this is what I need. Or, you know, this is what I do. This is where I spend, spend a lot of my time. But what, it's interesting, when we get, if we were to look at something, we go, oh, but I don't, I, I don't know if this doesn't really, things that we think, oh, this matters so much to me. I'm building my life around it. I'm so engaged and I'm throwing all my energy into it. All of a sudden that means nothing, nothing. Not even a thought. Goodbye. Other things that maybe we're not paying any attention to right now, all of a sudden, whew, that means something very different to me. You know, I think it reveals that a lot of, I don't want to use this word, I don't mean to offend anybody, but a lot of our sloppiness at a moral, relational, or spiritual level is connected to an assumption about our lives. And that assumption is that we have time. And so because we have so much time, and by the way, we are more, more susceptible that, to that the younger we are or the more we sense we're in our prime. It's like we don't even think, we just assume, you know, every now and then something will happen and it'll shake us up a bit. But for the most part, we just go, oh, I got time. I mean, should I be paying attention to that? I probably should, but you know, I'll come back to that part, maybe me and God later. I've got plenty of time to address that. We're not thinking about endpoints. That's one of the real things that we've got to challenge ourselves around if we're serious about following Jesus and we're younger is to not just tell ourselves, oh, you've got all the time in the world so you don't need to challenge yourself to live well for God. The Bible says redeem the time. Make the most of it. Challenge the way it's being utilized in our lives. It's a limited commodity. We know that theoretically, but how it plays itself in our life, we squandered so much of it. And it's the stuff that life on this side of eternity is really made of. And how much of it do, and again, I'm saying that as part of, I'm, I'm, we're together here, but one of the things we need to do is, Jesus said, today is the day of salvation. Pay attention to today. You know, utilize that time. Make the right decision to challenge ourselves to think differently. Some of us who are older, it's a different issue. When we're older, there's another temptation. Again, younger, sometimes we think, oh, I got all the time in the world so I can waste my time a little bit. Or at least not make sure it's being super quality, but more older, some of us, what will happen is we have another temptation. We, we may feel like we, we have used up our best time. And as a result, um, we start to say, well, th- my, my time now doesn't really matter that much anyway. Because I used up my best time. We kind of give up. We don't say it, but that's what can happen. We stop contending. We stop pursuing. We stop growing. We start living with sadness. And one of the things that I noticed um, and I reminded myself is that every decade has a new opportunity, really every year, every day does really, but just thinking from a decade standpoint of our lives. I was reminded of my grandfather. I talk about him from time to time. I think a lot of you know that. He was an amazing man. For me personally, I didn't really get to know him until I was a teenager and he was in his late 60s and then I really got to know him better when I started to follow Jesus seriously, and he had been a, a bivocational pastor here in San Francisco. He started just a small little church. They started in a house. He drove a muni bus for most of his uh, second half of his life and pastored. Didn't have enough. That's it. That's what he did. 
by the time I got, grew up, started feeling a serious desire to follow the Lord, partly because of what I saw modeled by him. Not a perfect man, but a real man. And what I mean by that is an authentic lover of God. Not without flaws, but genuine. The real deal, if I can say it that way. He had a contagious component to his faith, and it affected me as a young man, as a boy, really. But it was interesting because it was in his 70s, retired. In the latter, he dies at 76. It was in his last decade of his life, really, that he had his most impact. It's when my, my life with him intersects primarily. When he's going into his 70s, I'm going into my 20s, right? And there were others as well who were significantly affected by him. Younger, predominantly younger, younger, younger ones like myself at the time. But he, he had, in some ways, his most effective decade was the final decade of his life. And it's always reminded me that we ought not to underestimate the potential impact no matter where we are. Again, the temptation when we're younger is to say, I got all the time in the world, so I don't, I don't really need to really be, be really pushing myself to live well and stay close to God. The temptations we get older is, I, have, I really don't have a lot. You know, my best days are behind me. and we, I don't need to keep growing as a person. But don't underestimate what God can do. When I look at Jesus, I go, wow, he is amazing. He, he, he's, he's, so, he's focused, right? And he, I think at least part of, our, part of us, part of our broken condition is evidenced by our struggle to live what the scriptures would describe as a holy and a good life. And that's what I mean by that is a life that is characterized by love and and purity and joy and meekness and, I don't know, courage, self-control. And I think we're prone to wander. We're prone to get off track. We're prone to get stuck, to get gray with our disposition or our little bit gloomy. Things aren't going well for us. Kind of like um, the weather in the sunset in summer, right? That's <laughs> where I grew up. I said, how come, Mommy, the sun never shines where we live in the summer? <laughs> you know, what happened? You know, the thing about it is that's just what it is. You, you just don't walk around with shorts in the summer in, in the west side of the city. There's no way. It doesn't happen. I put that as that, but I look at it, I go, and, you know, I think sometimes we get stuck. We get gray. We get gloomy. We, we're prone to get emotion, into emotional ruts, gridlock, using the San Francisco analogy, like our streets and traffic, right? I mean, stuck. Can't they fix those holes? I don't understand why. It's like I pay all the money. He's going to get it. All right. Having said that, Jesus was able to stay on track. Why? How did he do it? Because he lived relentlessly in the center of the Father's will. He really does model for us total health as a human being. He is, in that sense, he's the ultimate human being. We, we are not Jesus. But he is our example for those of us who are followers, who want to follow him. Seriously, right? He is our example. The Bible tells us, the scripture says, follow in his steps. In Philippians 2, we're told, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's this idea that he, who, who, what was Jesus like? Well, for one thing, we know this. He was utterly pure, but joyful. Which almost sounds like, a, like, what? What are you talking about? They didn't, when Jesus walked in, they couldn't say, oh, gee, but yeah, but you have you looked at the way he lives. They could say maybe every now and then, well, he hangs out with questionable people. But never was he being defined by that culture. He comes into a culture and he defines the culture. It's fascinating. So it's crazy. Uh, but, and they didn't go, oh, there he is. And I'm not the first person to say this. I think it was Dallas Willard who said it. They did not say, there he is, the unhappy man. 
When people pointed to Jesus, there was a happiness in him. Blessed flowed out of his life. Jesus models for us this idea, I think, sometimes of, of being morally clean. I know it's countercultural today, but fully alive. That's a, full of grace and truth. What a, be- what a beautiful thing when you see it. The, uh, he, there was no contradiction in, in him. There, it, the absence of which, you know, sometimes plagues you and me. Even, it, it's something that's lacking in even the most noble, noble of human beings. I'm going to use a word now that we don't use a lot. Jesus possessed what I would call, what his disciples clearly lacked. It was, I would call it a ballast. B-A-L-L-A-S-T. A ballast. And a ballast is actually a term that's used for a ship. It's, a, it's a basically a stabilizing mechanism. Ballast is heavy material. It could be like um, old, older days, gravel, sand, iron, more, more recently lead that is even still placed in ships at the bottom of a ship to keep a vessel, or battle, placed low in a vessel to improve stability and control. So that when a storms are hitting and the waves are raging, we're talking about massive stuff, the, 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 the steadiness is held because there's ballast in it. It keeps it, it keeps it in a stable place. And here's the thing, we're all gonna need a ballast or two in our life. Something deep, that steadies us when stuff is raging around us. At a spiritual level, it's absolutely essential. It appears that the primary ballast that Jesus had was a tendency to, when the heat was on, pull away from the crowds, get alone. Even from his own disciples, he would do it. Get alone with the Father in a quiet place, and then he would would calm himself and align himself with the Father's will. So the very interesting thing that Jesus did, he says he would rise early and he would settle himself in a secret place, aligning himself from all, with the Father away from all the voices that were pushing, pulling, and asking and, and, and just trying to create noise in his life. He would, he would clear it out. Now, I thought that got me thinking about my own kind of you know, what, is, what are the ballasts that help me as a follower of Jesus? And maybe they'll help you as well. This is how I think of it, okay? Here's, here's the stabilizing mechanism that can keep us in place, or mechanisms that can keep us in place if we're serious about following the Lord and we're going to have stuff in life that's hard and we're going to be tempted to fall away or follow, get ourselves wandering off into places or damage ourselves. How do we keep settled? At a, at a, how do we do it? Well, I think of this idea of, of having three components of ballast. Devotional, relational, and what I'm going to call habitual. For me, the devotional has to do with something that seems obvious, but it's actually an important piece of life. It's one of the stabilizing components that will allow us to prevail when it's hard or when, our, when, when things are going on that are difficult or when we're struggling. And that has to do with just having that time like Jesus had where we consistently have an ability to pull away, to pray, to praise Him. It might only be 30 minutes in a day, but we're carving it out, a consistent space for the Lord. We, we, I, I told you I've talked a lot about the value of, of writing out our prayers or about journaling and how important that could be to share our thoughts with God, have that space in our life that we're creating to just be with Him, 
to talk to him, to, to listen for his voice, to read his words, to let those words settle into our hearts, to make that kind of an investment. You know what you're doing? You're putting something deep down that is a stabilizing mechanism that will, when the storms of life hit, you will hold because this is a piece of who you are with the Lord right there. Another part of it, though, is the relational. We talk a lot about the value of investing ourselves, having enough space in our life where we can invest ourselves relationally. I'm not just talking about just any friendships. And I'm not suggesting that, that um, we only have friends with people who love Jesus. I'm not at all suggesting that would be ludicrous. What I am suggesting is it's absolutely essential to have key people in our lives who love the Lord and who want to train with us. And that there is not, not all fellowship is the same and not all input is the same. And when something is built around a relationship with, Lord, with the Lord, it creates a commonality that produces a kind of fruitfulness or strength that moves into our life. I can only tell you that there have been critical times in my life where having invested in a few key relationships, being committed to a group, has been of, of innumerable or incalculable value. Because we're not always strong at the same time. We talk about this a lot, the value of small group, the value of serving in ministry, the value of having a consistency of connection with people who we can pray with, who we can be honest with, who we can be vulnerable with, um, who we can pray for and be prayed for by. I mean, that is huge. It is a ballast that will hold us when our faith is waning or we're emotionally getting crushed or under a tremendous amount of anxiety or part of us is struggling with our faith with God or we're getting allured by this or pulled off by that. And th this is a holding zone. It creates that depth at the bottom levels, right, that holds us. We're saying, look, you know, let's hold our lines together. And, there, you know, and, then, and then I'm thinking about that as well from the standpoint of this other piece, Right, which is the what I call the habitual. This is for me. This is me. I believe it was modeled by the Lord. But one of the habits. See, habits habits can be really habits can be bad, but ha we can get into bad habits, no question. But we can also get into some good habits. And part of me is convinced that one of the best habits we can ha ever have is what you are doing exactly right now. You're in the Lord's house. You made it a point to be in his house because it meant something. Now, maybe a few of us here were invited and we're just a guest of someone. And you're more than welcome here. But the fact of the matter is that when we have a consistency, if we're serious about following the Lord, there will be a habit of coming to his house. The Bible says that Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. He honored the Sabbath. That's the one in seven, right? The Sabbath. One day, it was, it was created, God put it in, he gave it to his people, not as a punishment, but as a blessing. You will not just be defined by your work. You are to recreate yourself and walk with me. Honor me on this day. That principle is huge. The idea of having a habit of coming to the Lord's house, it's a tremendous way of gaining stability. Another thing that I do, and it's because I believe it's biblical, and I was taught to do it since I was a boy, just starting, my first job I ever had, I was told, Learn to tithe. So I had my money. I was like, what does that even mean? Give a tenth unto the Lord. And that's what I would do. And it was modeled for me that if you build your life at a financial level around the Lord's ways and you honor him, he can do more with 100 than we can do. He can do more with 90 than you could do with 100, Terry. And it's a way of saying that all that I have is his anyway. And I bring, it, it, it predates the law. It goes all the way back to Abraham who tied the tenth. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, these things ought you to have done, not to neglect the other, but you should have done it. 
right? The idea of, of honoring the Lord with our first food, that's a habit for me. Coming to his house, that's a habit for me. I don't even think about it. It's like what I do. It's how I live my life. That's a ballast point. It says that he's important to me. This matters to me. My life is built around these things, not fit in other, to fit into my recreational schedule. See what I'm saying? It's important. It's the center. Jesus models that for us. Now, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what I want to do, because I've been thinking about this a lot, I want to put up a couple of things, and just in the minutes that we have left, and I want us to look at how, how maybe we can process through this idea of having a center place. Like, how do we build that spiritual center weight, and how should we be thinking about it? So let me, let me just say, let's resolve this. Let's be careful, basing it also on what was going on with Jesus when he was coming into Jerusalem. Let's be careful about what we desperately want, because it can blind us to what we need the most. By the way, uh, let's be careful about what we desperately want, or what others desperately want for us, or what our culture tells us we should want desperately. Any of those things. Because that may not be what we need most. What we think we need, and what others tell us we need, and what the culture is trying to convince us that we need, may not be what we need most. Everybody was telling Jesus, you're the greatest in this moment. Five days later, they'd be spitting, him, spitting on him as he was bloody mess walking through the streets and mocking him as he hung as a tragic, and I'm going to use the phrase, I don't do it with irreverence, but as essentially a piece of garbage hangingness to two common criminals, bloody and naked. Five days He wasn't caught up by people's opinions. There was not, he could, he could as I, I was looking at this, and I was going, oh, Lord, you're, you're amazing, because he moved through the gauntlet of praise and pain, adulation and adversity, and he prevailed. He's like, with this, okay, here's another word. He moved through it with, this isn't a word that's used a lot, but he, he had an astonishing equanimity. And equanimity has to do with the idea of calm, a calmness deep within, that particularly shows up under pressure. It's a great word, actually. It has to do with balance when the heat is on. It's something that's cultivated. Jesus models it for us. The hotter it got, the more equanimity he showed. It was, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to watch, actually. The more they praised him, the less he, he needed it. The less it impressed him. The more he had to suffer, the less he was moved. Not saying that he wanted it. It just is fascinating to watch him move, to, to watch how he models it. And I, I go, Lord, that's he, because he, it's like there are times where I go, Lord, I, I see you being, I see the Lord. And by the way, to say someone has equanimity, it doesn't mean passionless. It doesn't mean numb. It doesn't mean stoic. I don't feel anything. It, it's that. But there's something deep down that we hold. Everything's swirling about. Part of us is afraid. We want to run, whatever it is. But there's something going on of depth down below that we hold. And there's been a couple of times where I've been so afraid. I, I was sharing with you some of that stuff the last few weeks and in the months before. That there were some times where I felt like the Lord was saying to me, because I was scared. Like I couldn't figure out how to do this right. And many other things that I would try to do that I always used as a way of moving forward with the things that God was trying to, to get me to move through. I, I was trying. It wasn't working. And I remember feeling like one time the Lord said to me, you know what? I know this is going to sound strange, but I'll say it anyway. 
steady, son. Steady. And I can't help but there are times when the Lord's going to say, steady, daughter. Steady. Calm. Steady. But I got to solve, I got to solve. Steady. Steady it. Let me steady you. Deep. We'll come through this in the Lord. Better if you work with me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come unto me anyway. Second piece, here it goes. Let us, we only got a few minutes left. So let us live with humility for the applause of heaven, knowing that human praise and popularity, look at this, is fading and fickle and temporal and ever-changing. I was reading this article by um, a man named Kevin Tam about the story of some obscure person who's obscure to us, history's forgotten it, but I'm telling you, I don't think heaven has. His name was Robert A. Jaffray. Jaffray was born in 1873. He was a wealthy heir to a successful Toronto newspaper, The Globe and Mail. And his father had great ambitions for him to become the CEO and the owner of, of it. It was like a tremendous, he was trained well. Uh, he, was, he had pedigree, power, training, education. He was set. But looking past his family's fortune and ample political connections, he sensed the calling, listen to this, to become a missionary. And against his father's intense, deep opposition, Robert decided that his calling was to serve in China, which he did. Now, as part of his preparation for serving in China, he became fluent in Chinese. And that was the, this skill, um, his, his, not only his training and his capacity and his understanding of business and finance, but his fluent skill of being able to speak Chinese attracted the interest of what was, at the time, one of the great companies of the world, Standard Oil of New York. And they had wanted to set up an office in, the, in Hong Kong, but they needed somebody to represent them, and they, they wanted to hire Jaffrey, who had all the skill sets they needed, plus, the again, the ability to speak Chinese fluently. And so they sent him an offer um, of a huge salary, he said, we'd like to hire you. We're going to pay you a ton of money. And he said to them, thank you, but no thank you, right? I'm, I appreciate your offer, but no thank you. They later returned, and they doubled the salary, the salary offer. And he said, we, we want you to reconsider, to which he said again, no, I, I, I'm, I thank you for the offer, but the answer is still no. Finally, they sent him a telegram with one sentence. Jaffrey, at any cost, basically, you name your salary, we will pay it, at any cost. And he replied with one line, and I don't know, for some reason, when I first I, I saw it, I, I got kind of emotional, I don't know why, but he responded with a line to their offer, you just write the check, you just tell us what you want, it's your job, we'll pay you anything. And he said this, your salary is big, but your job is too small. Isn't that great? <laughs> your salary is big, but your job is too small compared to what I've been called to. You go on to study what happened in his life. 
He went on to be, be a missionary in China for more than 35 years. His work included the translation of the New Testament into Cantonese, as well as writing and editing the Bible Messenger, a publication which, was sent, which sent training materials to Cantonese missionaries, which was later reprinted in other colloquial language versions. The guy made a huge difference for the Lord. It, and by the way, it doesn't mean that always the center of the Lord's will is going to mean, okay, I'm supposed to leave my career and go do full-time ministry. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, way more majority of us, that will never be uh, what the Lord is asking us. I will tell you this. It was something that I had to wrestle with when I was a, a young man. I was 17, I, I 16, 17, somewhere in there. I remember, you know, I, I was wrestling with what I should do. I love my grandfather. He had this little Pentecostal church in the city, but... You know, I had this opportunity. I was wanting to go to the Air Force Academy, play soccer. There were some things that were brewing. And plus, I would bring people to the church. It was small. It was small. I would bring them and my friends. And they would come and they would go, we like you, Terry, but your church just freaks us out, man. It's just like, <laughs> it's crazy. And I... I said, I, I know, I, I <laughs> probably wouldn't go here myself, but, you know, I, I love that man. That's the thing. I felt called to the man to just serve with him. And I ended up, the Lord, I, you know, and then I was wrestling with that, and the Lord ended up, I, for me, gave me a verse. This is how I see it. Sometimes the Lord will give you a verse for a season, sometimes for a life verse. Mine ended up being something I was reading about Simon Peter. Jesus said to him, Satan is desire. I know, strange verse. Desire to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. And it was like the Lord said to me, you want to know what success looks like in your life? That. If you don't do that, strengthen your brethren, then it doesn't matter what else you achieve. You just failed. That is what you're supposed to do. And I know it. But not all the times is it something that clear. Now, I haven't always lived up to that, but I've tried to honor it. But most of us are called to vocations outside the church in the marketplace. I'm not diminishing that at all. Most of us are called in what some people call, I don't know if it's a fair term, the real world. But here's the thing. We are to honor Jesus on the job in any circle we're in. And how do we make our decisions? Is it all about the money? The increased earning power, the prestige? I mean, maybe there are going to be times when God calls us another way to make space for other more meaningful things. It might be service in the church. It might be more relational flexibility. You know, remember this. Just because a door opens and a bunch of money is waved in our face doesn't mean that's the best way to go. Doesn't mean that necessarily. Now, God is not anti-wealth. He's not anti-achievement. By no stretch of the means is that the case. So much good is done for the cause of Jesus, affecting people's life in amazing ways because people are ambitious, but they honor the Lord with their ambitions. However, having said that, not everything is always about getting up the ladder higher or getting more earnings or getting, you know, stuff, Jesus said, that stuff will fade away. Here. Your salary is big, but your job's too small. The point being that there are going to be times where the Lord is going to say, you know what? That is not my best will for you. And we're going to get placed in these situations where we're going to have to ask ourselves, what really is the center of my life? Am I defined by what the culture says is success? 
or do I follow the way of Jesus? In which case, I'm going to ask different kinds of questions. And the questions I'm going to start asking myself are, what do you want me to do here, Lord? And is this the best way for me? Now, it may not look that impressive to somebody else, but if it impresses you, Lord, then actually that's more important. You see, this is where it really hits. This is where it really matters. What, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasure in earth. I, we're, things, you know, that five goes bad at five days, right? What it really matters. It, sometimes what we think is nothing, God says that's a big deal. Who, who, sometimes it's just being close to his will and being honest and humble and not being caught up in the cultural waves that define and tell us this is what success is. When God says that may not always be in alignment with my ways, and it may not even be in alignment for my way for your life. And real success is not going to look like that for you. It may, but it may not. Have we even thought about it? Does it is it our first reaction to say, well, what do you want, Lord? And I go back to my heart with God. I go back to my key relationships. I seek to know what you want for me to do. And then I finish with this, and we'll leave it here, right here on this third piece, and they'll just stick it up there. When we get a sense of it, let's live with committed love that is anchored in sacrifice, right? And more than self, selfishness and, and, and get safe in his grace. And I say that because safe in his grace because we're not always going to get it right. But, because he's, the Christian way, listen to me, is the way of the cross. The way of the cross involves sacrificial love. That's his, that's the way. And that's not always easy to get to that place. If Jesus struggled with doing the Father's will, remember in the garden? Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's another way, I, I prefer it. He's not insane. He doesn't want what's coming. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, ours, God will meet us where we are in that struggling place, okay? He loves us. He has a plan. I, mean, I want to go ahead and pray. I'll pray for All right, even now. Lord, I thank you for your promises and your concern for our lives. I know that you call us to deep and deeper places and you, you challenge our conception of what success looks like. And again, most of us are going to be out there confronted with things on a daily, yearly basis. We're going to have to look at what's really important to us and we're going to have to see, look deep within us to see where our real center is. I ask that you would equip us to be able to prevail through things that life throws at us, whether those are things are things that are alluring, but yet are, will get us into a place that's not good for us, or whether those things are hard and we're questioning your love for us. Teach us how to have that stability at a deep place built around these principles that keep us closer to the center of your will. Give us your grace when we don't get it right but give us courage to make the right decisions when we know what we're supposed to do. I ask for your blessing. Bless these coming days. Let them be amazing days for us. Let our hearts get drawn closer to you. Bless our time of giving. Bless this closing song. Let's not run past this moment. Let's this word settle into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.